Colossians chapter 2, a little bit of review. What uh, this letter is all about, Paul's writing a young church, a young, a young in the faith church. They're dealing with some different issues that are going on as the result of other teachers who have come into this church at Colossae, and, and they're kind of competing with each other, and then they're both competing with Paul in kind of what we would call these days the marketplace of ideas. And so they have, have brought different perspectives into the church that are incompatible, really, with the gospel. And so Paul is writing this church and saying, listen, I know some of their ideas sound good. I know that, that some of what they're saying, they can make a strong argument. They're eloquent people. But the stuff they're going to lead you into literally leads you away from Jesus. And it will lead you astray from the gospel that you came to. And he's concerned about this church and the things that are going on as a result of these, these kind of competing ideas from these, these teachers who have moved into Colossae and are, are, are pretty hard-headed because they're really kind of in it for their own influence and power. And so they're not going to give it up easily. And so he's trying to shore the church's faith up and encourage them. And that's, that's the context here. He starts the letter with what we looked at a few weeks ago by reminding them, first of all, here's who Jesus really is. And here is, is the center of the universe found in Jesus Christ and truth found in Jesus Christ. And so stay anchored there. That was kind of the beginning of chapter 1. And he's, uh, he's going to continue that theme here in chapter 2. Let's read the first five verses of what Paul has to say. And this, this will be up there if you don't have it. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Just a quick reminder, Paul did not start the church at Colossae. He's just an apostle who's trying to do the good job of building up and encouraging them. That's why he says he's never seen them face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you through plausible or with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So we'll, we'll read a little bit further, but this, this first part of what he's telling us is, listen, I know that we've never seen each other, most of us, and you don't know me face to face, but I want you to know that I love you as brothers and sisters in Christ so much that even though I am in chains, you are more on my mind and more on my heart than these chains are. I'm more concerned about the things that you will follow and maybe even the things that you will fall for, he says, than his own imprisonment. He says his chief concern is that they would come to know the love of Christ and to have a clear understanding of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And I think that should tell us what is really important from God's perspective for Christians. We can make all kinds of lists of what's most important about being a church. Everybody's probably going to have a little bit different list, but there are going to be some themes that come across that all of us share. Some of those are right and good. Some of them are not so much. Some of them could even be, in, their, uh, in the long view, could even be dangerous, even though they may not seem, seem so in the, in the short-term view. One of the things uh, one of my teachers, Richard Rogers, always challenged us to think about anytime we were examining a view of Scripture or of how we would do something in practice was never to look at how is this going to work this week, but to always look at the long view. 
He, all, he kept, just kept saying it to us the same way all the time. Short step, long journey. Don't just look at what's right in front of you. I remind somebody's children who hunt with me. I'm not going to embarrass my own, but somebody's children who hunt with me. Uh, I'm always reminding them, and I probably heard this myself when I was 12 a lot. I bet you. I bet you that's why I say it. You're never going to find a deer right there in front of your feet. Any of you ever hear that as kids? You're walking along. You're trying to avoid rocks and cactus. And your dad says to you, you're never going to find a deer right there in front of your feet. Yeah, I think I probably heard it. I, I probably heard more often, you walk too loud. And I've said that too now to other people. You walk too loud. Be still. I couldn't do it when I was a kid. Now the thing that my dad was always going, be still, be still, be quiet. I'm the one going, be still, be quiet. I, that's what I go there for. Yeah, see a deer, don't see a deer. I like to be still and be quiet. You ever go with a loud hunter? Only once. Only once. Then I give them the boot. I don't want to be anywhere near them. Okay. I was that, though, as a kid. I was the loud hunter, I think, my dad would say. Where was that going? Long, short step, long journey. Short step, long journey. So you, you, you know you're not going to find either the truth by only living for that one next step. Now, I know Loretta Lynn, one step at a time, sweet Jesus. But she's talking about how you deal with hardship. When it comes to finding truth, you've got to have the long view. Satan often deceives us with what seems like it'll work for the moment. And then we find out long term, boy, that did seem to work then, but it's not working now. Or that, that, that calmed the fire then, but it created 16 problems down the road. Uh, when you're talking about fixing air conditioners and things like that, what is it? Pay me now or pay me later? The truth has the same kind of a thing. You can, you can pay for a real cheap, quick fix now, or you can invest in the truth. But you'll pay me now or you'll pay me later kind of a thing, right? So it's, all of that is what Paul's trying to get them to see. I want to look a little bit at these, these people that were causing trouble because there's some, there's some real parallel to things that we're going through uh, in the big picture of the church and in the world right now. The two views that he's dealing with is on the, we'll call it left because that's the way we think, right? On the left is mystical polytheism. Benny isn't here this morning, but he keeps teasing me about using big words, and I was really hoping he'd be here, and I put those in there just for him. But mystical polytheism, you probably know what it means. Poly means many, theism means God. So it's talking about you believe in many gods. And it's kind of a superficial, mystical uh, belief set. And there were a bunch of, there were tons of subsets among this where you believe there are many gods. This, this bears itself out in a lot of ways. The, uh, the Romans had inherited a lot of Greek thought and Greek gods, and so they had just gods all over the place, right? The same way as if you went to India today, although a different set of gods, if you went to India today, you would find in their belief set, generally, generally speaking, you will find people who believe in a whole lot of gods. And one of the challenges in evangelism, missionaries, well, every missionary I've ever known that worked in India said this is one of the number one, if not the number one challenge. It is getting people to understand that when you come to Jesus, you come to Jesus alone. That He is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Him. That's hard to understand a lot of times in that culture because the idea is if you find a God who will bless you in this way, you add Him to the shelf of 35 other gods or 655 other gods or 785 other gods. Literally thousands exist and people hold to any number of them. There's not an idea that there is one true God. But Judaism, Christianity, and also Islam, but for our set here, Judaism and Christianity 
it's not optional that we are monotheistic, not polytheistic, that there is one God. Well, these teachers are coming into this church and they're teaching one kind of the Roman idea. Well, Jesus is great and Jesus is wonderful and you ought to follow Jesus. But that doesn't mean you can't also go up here to the temple and lay with a temple prostitute. That doesn't mean that you can't also go and eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's why they, that came up in Corinth. And so it was just this constant trying to blend and mix in all the Roman deities and leftover Greek deities into Christianity. And if they try and actually make it part of the faith, that's called syncretism. You synchronize two incompatible faiths into one mutation of them both or of many. And so that was just a constant problem. It is a constant problem. We'll come back to that, about it being a constant problem. The other facet to this side of, of the road is that they were also into, just as the Greeks were, lots of philosophy. Now, philosophy in and of itself, you know, it's just the love of wisdom. It's not, that, it's not a big problem. It's not a problem at all necessarily. But it can be if the philosophy you chase, the wisdom that you chase, is not actually based on truth, righteousness, holiness, and, and for our beliefs, certainly, if it's not based on Jesus, if it's incompatible with the gospel of Christ itself. And so that's, you can see where we still have this problem going on all the time. We will, as long as there are people. We're going to always have these competing ideas, and we're going to struggle with uh, which one is right? That's part of our, our, all of us have been through a journey in our lives where we've had to come and settle in on, okay, so what's actually truth? What's actually right? What's actually wise? And what's wisdom? James addresses it. Look over at James chapter 3. This won't be in that app because I didn't, I didn't include that. But James chapter 3, starting verse 13, he gives us a little bit of an idea of, well, how do you test whether a wisdom is good or whether it's, as Paul says here, whether it's one of these empty philosophies. One is, if it does, before we get to James, one is, if it isn't compatible with what the Apostle John says in 1 John, when he says, anyone who does not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the coming of Jesus Christ, in the bodily coming and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, is an antichrist. Not like in the movies Left Behind series, like you are against Christ. So that would be easy. If your philosophy leads you to a denial of Jesus' incarnation, it's out. Wrong philosophy. That's, pretty, that's an easy test, right? Already, that's, that's just a good filter. But James gives us a little bit more. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? This is James 3.13. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So first test is, how does he live? Is his, is the, his way of life meek? Is he humble? Is she humble? That's a, that's a pretty serious test, isn't it? I mean, you can come to church then and have a pretty empty philosophy by that standard, can't you? Because humility. He's saying, no, this is, this is one of the tests. So humility and by his conduct. If it doesn't change the way he lives into a way that is good and holy and righteous, that's not a healthy philosophy. That's not good wisdom is what he says, and it's not from above. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. See, we often think of false teachers as being people who are wrong about how many songs are supposed to be before the Lord's Supper, right? Or how you sang those songs, or who led those songs. Scripture talks about false teachers as being people of a character 
that is hypocritical and false, that is incompatible with the teachings and life of Jesus. Totally different standard, isn't it, than what we often look at. Uh, But this is the one that matters, is what James is saying. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. Look how he describes it. It is earthly, unspiritual. Look at that last one. Demonic. Demonic. There are false sets of wisdom in our world that are not merely incorrect. They're not merely different. James says their source is demonic. So it's serious stuff. It's not just a hobby. Okay? We, we might want to treat it as, well, I just like to look at different ideas as hobbies. It's not just a hobby. What we believe and what we think and the wisdom we use and the way that we live our lives really matters because it may reflect more of the world of Satan than the world of Christ. This is what James is saying. It really does matter. And if you find that your wisdom that you've bought into or your philosophies that you've bought into allow you to hold on to bitterness and anger, he says, that's from the devil. And that might be a misshapen form of Christianity. I'll give you an example. And I mentioned this in, in a class not that long ago on forgiveness that uh, I was at a, a church where one of the guys in class said, you know, we don't really have to forgive unless somebody comes crawling and begging and asking for forgiveness. He said if, we, if they come crawling and begging and asking, then the Lord requires us to forgive them. But until they do, we don't have to do anything. Now, remember what Paul said in Colossians? He said, don't be taken in by people with plausible arguments. Now, to our human flesh, doesn't that sound plausible? That makes sense. That's what plausible is. That makes sense to us. That's another way of wording this over here, empty philosophy. You could just put, that makes sense to me. Because that's often our standard, isn't it? But that makes sense to me isn't a standard at all, is it? Not really. It puts us as the standard instead of Jesus. But the problem with saying, well, that makes sense to me is this. We are saying we can, we can actually boil down all the truths of the universe and the wisdom of the Almighty God into whether or not our little eight pounds of mush goes, that makes sense. How many of us have said that makes sense only to find out later we were 180 degrees from what was actually true? Have you ever put together Ikea furniture? Have you? Now, a lot of it makes sense to me. That doesn't mean it's going together, but it makes sense, right? So you, you, you look at it and you try to figure it out. What do you end up having to do? Throw it away and start over? Or, or go back to the trash can and grab the instructions, which might be in Swedish or Chinese. Who knows what you're getting? But, you know, you, you go back. And you have to find, okay, fine, I was wrong. That doesn't go here, it goes there. So we know how that works. Some of us can't even, VCRs have come and gone and have been dead for what? We're probably closing on 15, 20 years at this point. Like really and truly being a thing. How many of you still don't know how to set the clock? Some of you are young enough, you're going, there's a clock on a VCR? What? What's a VCR? But how many of you don't know? Some of you don't know how to turn off your phone. You see the slide up there every week, but you don't have a clue how you actually do that. And some of you have, you don't know how to turn off that when you're doing text. You know, you all, we all know who you are because you'll get something and in the middle of a prayer, like, what was that? Some of you got it louder than a typewriter. I don't know what that's about. And yet we think the same brain that can't figure out an Ikea chair can figure out all the wisdom of the universe and stand back and go, That makes sense, and that doesn't. 
You see what I'm saying? We might need a higher standard than ourselves. We just may. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how good at, at, at problem solving you are. It doesn't matter how wise you may be, like actually be. We still need a high standard far higher than ourselves because we are such flawed, imperfect people with just gaps in our knowledge and gaps in our wisdom that is not necessarily uh, uh, the result of any wrongdoing, just, just the result of our being human and we just don't have it all. But who does? Well, let's look back at, keep your finger in James, but look back at Colossians for a second. Let's be at the end of chapter 1. Ah. Yeah, middle. Verse 15, talking about Jesus, Paul said he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now to him be all the fullness, excuse me, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you think if Paul's right about who Jesus is in that paragraph, he might know more about life than us? No matter how long we're here, how learned we are, or how familiar we are with all the philosophies of the world. Is it possible the God who was here, the Christ through whom we were created and everything was created, might have a better understanding of human history and behavior than we do? Is that possible? I think it's possible. I think it's likely. I think that's the case. That was one side of the road. On the other side of the road over here, we have human tradition. The other competing set of values being taught at Colossae through these, these teachers that Paul says are false teachers were people who were coming from a religious, monotheistic background, Judaism. Okay, they weren't representative of Judaism as a whole. They are a subset of people who have claimed a belief in Christ but are holding on to the old thinking which, by the way, was wrong under the Old Covenant too. We kind of confuse that sometimes. The old thinking that we were saved by our perfect obedience and by our works. Go back to the Old Testament. It never actually teaches that. If you know enough about the sacrificial systems of Leviticus, you know that actually there was a component of grace that was there as well. And let's face it. Adam and Eve are condemned to hell by a legalistic system because they failed very early on. David, the king of Israel, would be condemned by that system because he failed in his, his affair with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband. Just those things alone. Set aside all the things that are not even mentioned in Scripture where he sinned just like we do, right? That just never worked. But the Pharisaical system, among others, kind of promoted this view that if you were religious enough, if you were traditional enough, if you were legalistic enough, if you were careful enough, God would be so impressed by your diligence that He would save you. How many of us would make it this morning based on that? Just in the last week. We won't even look at the whole life. Man, I don't want to place my bet on that one. Do you? 
But this is what they were promoting. And it sounds to us as Christians who believe we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves so that no one can boast. Paul wrote that to Ephesus. We look at that and we kind of immediately go, well, we would never do that. Well, we said we wouldn't do this either, but we do it all the time. So we'll probably do this too, right? Do you think we do? We'll come back to that. But they were constantly teaching, if you will go back to the law, if you will just keep all of the right holidays and do all the right rituals and say all the right mantras, God will save you. The problem is that doesn't put our salvation into the hands of God. That puts our salvation into our own hands. It actually makes God a puppet who must give us a certain thing if we do the right dance. That's never been true. That wasn't true under the law of Moses. It wasn't true in the time of the patriarchs. And it isn't true now. But people have been trying it all along and they're going to continue to. We'll we'll get back to that. Before we do, Paul brings them back to what actually matters. And that's Jesus. It's grace and truth. So he says, let's uh, flip back to Colossians. I keep moving my Bible around up here. He says in verse... I'm going to start in 2. And he's talking about why he has been struggling so much to work for them. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Part of the, the set over here of people are people called, eventually called, not at the time of, of Paul writing this letter, but they would eventually be called the Gnostics. People who believed they had special knowledge. We talked about this in our introduction. That they believed they had more spiritual understanding than everybody else. Okay? So, they believed they were the enlightened ones. And so Paul keeps using language to kind of jab at them. Right? He's trying to poke holes in these false philosophies so the Colossians will see the truth. And so one of the things he does is what he just said there. He says, it's in Jesus that you find all real wisdom and truth. You won't find it over here. Because what you find over here is stuff that will lead you to things like hedonism, which is just the pleasing of the flesh. Whatever makes me feel good, I'm going to do it. Do we still struggle with that? Yes, we do. We do. Whatever just it, it, it feels good, that must be right. If I enjoy that, God would not deny me that. Somebody had been reading their Bible if they believe that. But we've made that argument, haven't we? We've lived by that. And it isn't going to become true just because we like it. Because, again, we're not the standard. And empty philosophy isn't the standard. That would be hedonism. People have reacted to that and tried asceticism. That was another subset of these problems over here. Where you just deny everything because the flesh is evil, so don't, don't ever give in to it. And so they would go too far the other direction. And they would go so far as, as to beat themselves. And that came into forms of Christianity. Things like the, uh, I always forget their name every single stinking time. The people who were mentioned in uh, Tom Hanks, Da Vinci Code. Who's that group? You know who I'm talking about? I always forget their name. Who? No, but boy, that's a whole, that, that goes over here. He said Scientology. Scientology is right there, okay? Uh, with a few weird things like this mixed in for bad measure. But I can't remember them now. I'll remember them later when it won't matter. Um, But where they would beat themselves. If you read the Scarlet Letter, same idea. Uh, And that stuff's not stuff of fiction. People have done that. Beaten themselves into a bloody mess trying to conquer the flesh. And that too is an empty 
vain, useless philosophy. It doesn't work, does it? Only, Paul says, only when we find wisdom and truth in the Lord Jesus Christ do we find a way forward that actually meets the criteria for what is good wisdom from above that James said. He said earthly wisdom will lead you to things like bitterness, envy, jealousy, hedonism as well. That doesn't work. Real wisdom, he says, leads you to humility and a life that's full of good works that honor God. You think following Jesus would do that? Jesus demands that we leave our jealousy, that we leave our selfishness. We take up our cross and we follow Him in humility, in compassion, in unity. Such a a dramatic difference between the short step long journey of these different ways of thought. This one leads you to legalism. Harsh, critical, angry. You know what I'm talking about. I said I'd come back to it. Let's come back to it. In churches, often this, both of these things will happen. But this one is one that maybe some of you have experienced. Harsh, angry Christianity that is all about the keeping of certain rituals and rules. And if you step out of line of this unwritten, probably in a church of Christ, it's going to be unwritten, but it's still there, right? Creed. You must believe this, think this, walk this, step this. It doesn't have to do with Jesus. It has to do with keeping the rules. This is all about keeping the rules, ticking things off. Where does that leave people? divisive it leaves them in a state of disunity it leaves them in a state of brokenness because you can never live up to that guy's standards ever now i've known people that came from this background you know how we are we pendulum swing right we go from right to left or left to right and all the time and we think to fix this we got to go over here and to fix this we got to go over there and it doesn't work it leaves us one dizzy mess doesn't it broken and usually giving up it doesn't work i knew a guy who went into this he was so tired of growing up at a church in east texas that was so legalistic that every time they gathered it was an argument Every time they were to, tried to meet around the table, it was not to, to focus on Jesus. It was to see who was going to make a mistake and who could they jump on this Sunday. And he got sick and tired of it. Okay? Some of you may have been there. But he didn't find the way through Jesus to fix it. He just sought totally different philosophies. And did it set him free from this? Oh, sure it did. Sure it did. It took him straight from legalism to some hedonism He lost his marriage. He lost his friends. He lost his family. He lost his extended family. You think that would have come from Jesus? It didn't. It didn't. We have to be careful about what we'll fall for. And we have to be careful about what philosophies we chase after. And one of the tests is, is it earthly? Is it unspiritual? Is it demonic? Does it encourage me to be selfish? Does it encourage me to be angry? Does it encourage me to be judgmental and harsh? That's not from Jesus. The only way we can really fix that is to what? Hebrew writer says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the guy who wrote the story, the author and perfecter of our faith. When we do that, things start to clarify. Our lives start to get back in line with where they ought to be. And Isaiah talked to us about this. Isaiah chapter 30, 21, he said, whether you turn to the left or to the right, 
you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And that voice he's talking about is the Word, the truth of God, who is Jesus himself. Whether you go, you know, I didn't think about that. Is that right? Yeah, hey, that is your right and your left. That was not on purpose. I'm not that good. But whether you turn to the right and to legalism or whether you turn to the left, just a full-blown whatever you say goes, I'm okay, you're okay kind of stuff, you're going to be going in the wrong direction. But you're always going to have Jesus behind you saying, not that way, not that way. This is the way. Come back and walk in it. He's always going to call us back. He is what uh, Stephen Covey called in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, our true north. He is our guiding star who will always, no matter how lost we may be, we can look up to him and say, Jesus, I don't understand this. What am I supposed to do? What's wisdom here? How do I live this? How do I get through this? Do I or don't I here? Jesus is not going to lead us in the wrong direction. He will be the voice that keeps calling us back to what is right. And that's what Paul says here, in, uh, starting in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. He says Jesus is the standard. He's the rule. He's the guide. He's the authority. And look at what He says. He says that we have already, already received Christ Jesus as Lord if we're in Christ. So the wisdom we need isn't out there that wisdom is in here. And we're blessed to live in a time where we can easily look. If you don't know, if you're saying, well, I, that's all nice and, and high-minded and whatever, but I don't know how I actually find out about Jesus. How do I actually know what He wants me to do? Dive into the Gospels. It's why we need to constantly go back. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, go back and do it again. Go back and do it again. Why? Not out of a, an empty ritual or a, a legalistic, you need to be reading your Bible. But out of a need for wisdom. What does love actually look like? What does faith look like? You can't go wrong looking at Jesus to find out, can you? You can always get recentered on what's right and what's good, going back and looking at Jesus. And so Paul just calls them back. He says, remember the gospel that you received. Go back. Look at that. Be rooted and built up and established. He uses these really strong words, and I've highlighted them there and underlined them too, because this is what he wants us to understand. You need to make sure that when the winds of crazy doctrines blow, when the winds of crazy philosophies blow, or legalism blows, you need to be sure that you withstand that and stay grounded in the truth, rooted. He uses that term of a tree, deeply rooted in the Gospels. We can't go wrong, can we? We're not going to be perfect, but we cannot go wrong with our life when it is rooted in what would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? And how am I going to be like Jesus? That's, that's always going to bring us back to the right place. No matter what happens, we're going to be in the right place with Jesus. He uses this term built up, and it's, it's like building a strong wall, that idea. And so he says, you need to have your defenses built, your walls built up as well. You need to be ready. Why? 
You think Satan's not going to attack you if you're trying to really live by the truth? You become target number one when you do that. So be ready. But if your roots are deep and your wall is strong, what are you going to be able to do? This is what he wants us to understand. You will have been established in the faith just as you were taught. I don't think it's by accident. I should have underlined underlined it. Abounding in thanksgiving. There's something like an inoculation that being thankful does for us, doesn't it? Because what was wisdom from below? Bitter? Doesn't thanksgiving help deal with bitterness? Kind of prevents that? If, if we are thankful people, we are far less likely to become embittered and full of disunity if we're thankful for each other. It's hard to say thank you to Jesus for somebody and hold on to anger about them at the same time, isn't it? Which philosophy would have you say, well, I'm not going to thank, be thankful, I'm just going to let myself be angry with them? Then we know our philosophy's off, don't we? And we recalibrate back to Jesus. Somebody who could look at the people nailing him to the cross and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Wouldn't that change us? To be constantly centered on somebody like that instead of all the competing philosophies in our world that come around all the time. Empty philosophies that basically boil down to whatever you want to do, do it. However you want to do it, do it. That stuff sounds plausible. Oh, God just wants me to be happy. God wants you to be saved. God wants you to be holy. Go back to James 3 and we'll close with this. Because I didn't finish reading what he said about wisdom. Verse 7, but wisdom from above is first pure. Here's our test. How do I know if the wisdom I've got matches with Jesus or not? Does it lead you to purity? Are your thoughts holy? Are your pursuits righteous? Are your behaviors in line with those of Jesus? Or have you slowly let the world convince you, you know what, this is probably okay. He says it's first of all pure. First, number one, pure. If there's a, a, a principle under attack in our world today, don't you think that's probably the devil's first on his list too? Look at the things in our music. Look at the things in our entertainment. Look at the things in our conversation. You can't even take your kid down the frozen food aisle anymore without hearing a lot of stuff I'm not allowed to repeat because then I'd violate that one right there myself, right? You can't do it. Why is that? The devil's diligent and we need to be too. First of all, pure, then peaceable. The world could use a lot more of that. I bet a lot of households here represented here today could use a lot more peace, couldn't you? Fewer arguments, more love, more forgiveness. Peaceable, gentle. Look at what he says. Open to reason. That kind of speaks more to this side over here, doesn't it? Because legalists are not very reasonable, are they? And open is never a word they're used used to describe them, right? Open to reason, full of mercy, also usually not on this side, and full of good fruits, not on either side. How we live really does matter. The outcome of our life really does matter. Impartial. And sincere. Look at what he says. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray together.